0: Listen to The Amendment now, wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome back to the show. I am Diana Kander. Excited to have you join me for another installment of me trying to explore the failures of business past. As you may have gathered from some of the other episodes this season, I have been trying to explore the stories that we've all heard over the last 10, 20, 30 years of what happened in famous business failures and really find the people that were there at the scene of the incident to get the full Richer story. And that has turned out to be the case in every instance, including that of the story of Atari's demise. Now, in the early 1980s, Atari owned 80% of the video game market, and they accounted for 70% of the profits of their parent company, Warner Communications. By 1983, just three years into the decade, they had racked up over a half billion dollars in losses. That's over 500 million in losses. And by the end of 1984, Warner had sold the company off and they were pretty much defunct. So today I'm talking to John Hagel, who served as senior vice president of strategy at Atari. And he was right there at this pivotal moment. He joined the firm right as they peaked in the early 80s and then was there as they went out of business negotiating the sales documents as everybody made their way out the door. In addition to his time at Atari, John has spent over 40 years in Silicon Valley and has experience as a management consultant, an author, a speaker, an entrepreneur. He's worked at Deloitte, McKinsey, and Boston Consulting Group and is also the founder of two Silicon Valley startups. John is the author of seven different books on business strategy and has won two awards from Harvard Business Review for best articles in that publication. John and I are going to discuss exactly what happened that led to the quick demise of Atari, John's theory on why success breeds failure inside organizations, and what he has learned about creating change in an organization in his 40 years of practice. And finally, John and I discuss how to create a learning culture in your company. Before we start the show, please take a second to review and rate the show. Uh, it means the world to me every time I read one of your reviews uh, on what you liked and didn't like about the show. And without further ado, please enjoy this conversation on Atari's Demise with John Hagel. John, thank you so much for, for joining me today. I have to tell you a quick story about why I wanted to talk about Atari. It's kind of like a personal story. So I'm a refugee from the Soviet Union. I came to the U.S. in 1989, and we had no money. We had $267, actually, when we showed up. And so uh, the everything we had was donated to us and i of course had no toys as a kid and i would go to the dumpster at the apartment complex where we lived to see like what people had thrown away and the first toy i ever had was an old atari game system with like all the games and two controllers that somebody just tossed wow and it's like a very sentimental thing for me as my first gaming experience as a kid and then as i became a business consultant i was really fascinated by the story of atari they created the gaming market they dominated it and then quickly left and when i found you on the internet (laughs) as somebody who was there right up until the moment that it happened i just had to talk to you so i thank you so much for for joining me for this conversation
1: I appreciate the opportunity to share some of my experience.
0: Awesome. So tell me your role, because you were kind of like on a side strategy division at Atari, but you saw the the whole inner workings, right?
1: Yeah. The the story is that I was recruited into Atari actually by the CEO of Warner Communications, which owned Atari at the time. And uh, his name was Steve Ross. And He at the time, this was in, I actually didn't join Atari until 1982. Um, And at the time, he was getting increasingly concerned that Atari might be vulnerable. And I had a strategy background. I'd been the founder of a tech startup. Um, So he thought that, and I was focused on computers, and his sense was uh, the computer business was a big opportunity. So anyway, he, He reached out and he initially brought me in to uh, be the head of strategy for the computer division of Atari. And then within about six months, I got advanced to become the chief strategy officer for Atari as a company, the the entire company, and uh, was there for two years and helped negotiate the sale of Atari at the end and then made my departure.
0: You were there like right at the pivotal moment.
1: Yeah. From the peak to the uh, <laughs> off, <if you> will.
0: <laughs> but enough where it's not your fault, you know, at the point where you came yeah. in, it was probably too late.
1: Exactly. No. I, well, you know, it's I often take I'm an optimist by nature and I, I my sense is it's never too late. But uh, certainly I wasn't able to uh, shift the the direction in time to to really make a difference.
0: So, look, I was doing research and there is like a dozen different reasons on the Internet speculations of what happened to Atari. And we can go through all of those. (laughs) Or uh, I would just love to hear your thoughts of, you know, you came in, what you thought you were walking into versus what was actually happening inside the organization.
1: Yeah what what drew me into Atari at the time I mean it was an extraordinarily successful company uh, but I what I saw was the the early effort they had made around designing and se- selling home computers and they were really one of the pioneers in the home computer business and while I saw that a lot of opportunity in the gaming area, my my sense was the big opportunity was in computers and I wanted to be part of that, help drive that. And so that's what, that's what drew me in. Um, You know, I think that um, probably the biggest lesson from, from Atari for me was, um, and I I use the phrase uh, (laughs) um, often now in my business work is Success breeds failure, that the more successful you are, the more vulnerable you become to failure. And it ultimately, and this is another theme that's come through in a lot of my work, it's about emotion rather than uh, you know, data or thoughts, You know, mindset. Um, and if, the more successful you are, it, it, two things happen. One is you become very complacent. Um, you know, you, you begin to believe, wow, you know, this is a, a, a result of my incredible brilliance or strength. And I'm just going to continue to be successful. So who cares? Yeah. There are these warning signals out on the outside but don't pay attention to them. They're just distractions. They'll just keep going. And then related to that is a sense of arrogance, right? I We accomplished this amazing thing nobody can get in our way. Nobody's going to stop us. So forget about it. Don't pay any attention to anything on the side. And to me, that, that was the culture in Atari when I came in was, and, you know, to be fair to them, they were extraordinarily successful. Again, they first come to, at the time, the fastest company to get to a billion dollars in revenue um, in history of the world. Um, and the, the thing that I find most, Fascinating is their brand surveys showed that globally, it was the second most recommended re- recognized brand besides Coca Cola. So there was a lot of reason to be complacent and arrogant, right? You know, my God, who can who can compete with us? We're the second most recognized brand in the world and huge company and hugely successful, but very vulnerable.
0: So Jim Collins, who wrote good to great also wrote this book, how the mighty fall. And he describes this five stages of decline inside of a company. And the first stage she calls hubris born of success, which I think is what you are describing. I would love for you to tell me what it looks like on the ground. We've, heard, <laughs> I've heard that these great stories from companies. We talked to, to the creator of new Coke the other day and he's they only served like hot dogs in the cafeteria. And when he got them to add a salad bar, his car got scratched because people just hated change <laughs> so much. So I would love to hear about what that hubris sounded like and what complacency looked like inside Atari when you got there.
1: Oh, boy, where to start? Uh, it was all over the uh, certainly in the leadership ranks. Uh, You know, it it was interesting, too. I think that the contrast for me was if you went out into the tech labs, there were, at the time, leading-edge technologists who were just pounding the table saying, you know, my God, there's so much more we could be doing. Um, But it it was at the corporate leadership level that you had the complacency and the, the arrogance that was playing out. My favorite example, I guess, of the complacency was at a time when they were facing increasing um, uh, pressure on the video game front and not advancing as rapidly as they could in the computer front. Um, they, I sat in a leadership meeting to discuss. The discussion was all about the new headquarters building that we were going to build at Atari and whether it should have a barber shop in it. That was the detail that really got everybody's attention. You know. And it was just a huge focus on irrelevancy because, you know, who cares? Everything's going to be fine. We just need to know whether we're going to be able to get haircuts in, in, the, uh, in the headquarters building. <laughs> the striking thing to me, again, in, in, in the culture of Atari at the time, was it was being driven by... A, senior executives many of whom had come from consumer goods companies and were marketers and just you know executives of large companies and they were had very little respect for the technologists who actually had been the drivers of the success of Atari it was all about marketing and, you know just getting the message out to the consumer versus how do we come up with the next great product and really drive the the uh, envelope in terms of product performance and next generation of products
0: so i understand the arrogance based on past success but then start like in the 80s they started having a lot more trouble selling systems selling games what was the reaction internally to things that weren't performing as well as they anticipated them to or or had performed you know in the past
1: well again i think the challenge was for for longer than necessary there was denial it was just dismissing the data well that's just a you know a short term blip uh, we'll get back to where we were no problem and then when it became even more severe and more sustained it, then there was oh well we need to you know re- rethink our marketing programs we're not you know communicating well enough with the the customers. It wasn't really going back to the basics of you know. No, this is about ultimately the product itself and how how rapidly are we advancing the product and and addressing evolving customer needs. And there just was no willingness to really go to that level. It was denial and then marketing and you know and then it was too late.
0: One of the things that I've observed inside organizations where there's like a disconnect between the people who are shouting this isn't working this isn't the same and then top management the people are really afraid of uh, political consequences and their competition with one another rather than moving the company as a whole forward i don't know if you saw any of that level of competition between the executives
1: yeah it's interesting so again i i more and more focused as a result of my experience at Atari on emotions. And um, the emotional shift that occurred was from complacency to fear. You know, as they began to see that things weren't going right, um, fear took over. And to your point, when when you're afraid, you go into much more of a combative kind of mindset. Number one, resisting change because that's risky. And number two, wanting to preserve your own position versus anybody else in the company. And so a lot of rivalry and and friction within the leadership, Um, but it's driven by fear. And one of the things that I've learned from my experience at Atari is if you want to drive change, you need to drive it through a sense of opportunity versus a sense of fear. That, you know, a lot of executives, when they talk about Change, adopt what they call the burning platform model of, you know, if we don't change, we're all going to die. That feeds fear. (laughs) And in my experience, it it feeds resistance um, to change. It's the opposite effect. It's just, oh my God, you know, can't change anything. It's too risky. Um, Versus, again, if you can frame a really inspiring opportunity and make it credible to people. It inspires them and motivates them to take risk and to change because we're going after this unprecedented thing that, you know, is wonderful.
0: Well, your time at Atari was pretty early on in your career. I'm curious how you reflected on that time. Like, were you embarrassed in 1984 when you left? Were you uh, excited for the next thing? What was that like? Uh <laughs>
1: I'd say frustrated more than anything else. I mean, it was just, you know, I had spent two years, I had really been brought in with the charter of trying to drive change uh, and had not succeeded in being able to drive the change and watched the company basically tank and helped to negotiate the sale of Atari to a new owner. But, um, you know, for me, that was, it was just a, I, I view life as a learning experience and so my my general attitude uh, when I face challenges and new uh, unexpected events is what can I learn from that what can I take away from that that will help me to have more impact in my next my next work so
0: so you said it shaped how you think about strategy so I would love to hear that
1: yeah yeah so uh, one of the things that and I'm seeing this actually uh, a lot today. Um, we're I believe in a global economy, we're moving into a world that's being driven by more and more rapid and unexpected change. And um, the natural reaction, again, that we have to that, number one, is fear. Uh, that's scary. And number two, when we're afraid, we tend to shrink our time horizons. We begin to just focus on today. If we can only get through today, that's all that that's what success. And so the dominant strategy of many companies today is sense and respond, being agile, being quick to respond to whatever's happening in the moment. The challenge with that is that um, if you're just responding to whatever's happening today, there's so much happening, you're gonna spread yourself way too thin across too many initiatives. And I've become a big proponent, and this is actually driven by other experience with Silicon Valley companies, some of the most successful tech companies pursue a strategy that I've come to call zoom out, zoom in. And basically, it focuses on two time horizons. The zoom out is 10 to 20 years. And it asks the question, 10 to 20 years from now, what's our relevant market or industry going to look like? And what are the implications for the kind of business we're going to need to be 10 to 20 years from now? That's zoom out. Zoom in, very different time horizon, 6 to 12 months. And on that horizon, the questions are, what are the two or three initiatives, no more, two or three that we could pursue in the next 6 to 12 months would have the greatest impact in accelerating our movement towards that longer-term opportunity or destination? And do we have a critical mass of resources against those two or three initiatives? But it's an interesting balance between, on the one hand, a very long-term view of an opportunity and direction, and then short-term action, but that's very focused based on that long-term direction. And I think it's very powerful as a way to navigate through very uncertain times, is you know, maintaining a sense of direction. But And and the other thing that's critical to this approach, uh, and the companies that pursue this have what I call a learning mindset. They're not saying, okay, that's the future 10 to 20 years from now. That's locked in. And these are the initiatives we're pursuing. That's locked in. They're constantly questioning and challenging, what are we learning from the actions we're taking that could refine our view of what that future is, what that direction could be, And how can we refine and make our short-term initiatives even more impactful based on what we're seeing in in terms of the early results? So it's a constant desire to learn through action, not just sitting there reflecting, but acting and in a focused way to say, what's really important? What could be the big opportunity that we should learn about?
0: It sounds like learning the learning imperative wasn't uh, in existence at Atari when you were there. Um, (laughs) What are the artifacts that you look for inside of an organization that demonstrate that they have a commitment to being a learning organization?
1: Uh, It's, it's interesting. Yeah. I think certainly again, if you, if you have complacency and arrogance, you're not typically going to be a learning oriented person (laughs) who cares I've accomplished what we need to, and we just keep doing what we're doing. The 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 learning mindset and learning culture. I mean, one of the ways I have of framing the transition that I think we're all going to have to go through is in in today's world, institutions. The mark of a strong leader is somebody who has an answer to all the questions. No matter what question, you can count on the leader to have an answer. By the way, if they don't have an answer maybe it's time to get rid of that person, get, get somebody who does, right? <laughs> exactly. In in the the new institutional model that's driven by learning, to, the, the mark of a strong leader is somebody who has the most powerful questions and who will freely acknowledge they don't have an answer and ask for help. Because it really starts to build in to to people a sense, number one, it's, it's not only okay, it's encouraged to ask questions. Because Again, in today's culture, asking questions is a sign of weakness, right? You don't know the answer, go read the manual, it's there. Um, and then it's this notion of asking for help, being willing and able to ask for help. That's not a sign of weakness, that's a sign of desire to learn. And we're gonna learn faster if we come together versus if I just sit in a cubicle somewhere and try to figure this out myself.
0: So I couldn't agree with you more that that's a skill set for the future, but at the same time, inside organizations, again, that is not what is rewarded, encouraged, taught. So how do organizations even make the transition? What needs to happen? How many COVIDs do we need to go through?
1: (laughs) Yeah, again, I think it's... um, at one level, it's about emotions and people. So, in my experience, uh, you know one of my big um, focal points is how to drive change in organizations. and i've I've come to believe number one, you have to have at least one person in the senior leadership team who has the um, the courage and motivation to really drive the change and take risk. Um, and then have that person not try to drive change in the core of the organization. I mean, the the typical approach to change is what I call the top-down, big bang approach, right? We're gonna change everything, It's gonna take a lot of money, it's gonna take a long time, but trust me, wonderful things are gonna happen. The the change approach that I believe is is most successful um, is what I call scaling the edge. So what I mean by that is, take that leader, that person at the senior ranks who's really got the courage and conviction and motivation to drive the change, and then have them find an edge in the existing business that today is relatively modest in terms of profits and revenue. But if you look at the long-term forces, and this is where the zoom out, zoom in approach comes in handy. What's that edge that could become the new core of your business? Not just the diversification, but over time, this will be where most of your profits, most of your revenue comes from. And focus on scaling the edge and driving the change on the edge rather than in the core. And over time, more and more people from the core will be drawn out to the edge to participate because they'll start to see the impact that it's achieving and want to be part of that. And I think, again, to me, back to the Atari days, I, I saw the computer business as an edge for Atari. It was, a, at the time, much smaller portion of the business than the video game business. But if you looked at the long-term trends playing out, it would could and would become the new core of Atari's business. But there was nobody at the senior level who was had the conviction and courage to really say we need to scale that edge and how do we do that?
0: And you're talking about not just scaling the product, but scaling a different kind of culture
1: totally. in that, that edge. Yeah, that's the key is you're driving change in the edge in a very different way of organizing and operating a business versus just the products that are being introduced to the marketplace.
0: And you think the the bang approach to change management, which is the norm, like the big initiative and posters everywhere that the antibodies of the organization will just eat it alive.
1: Yeah, one of my key messages from my experience driving change uh, in large organizations is never, ever underestimate the power of the immune system and the (laughs) antibodies that, in my experience, exist in every large organization and will mobilize immediately at the first sign of change. It's the reason why, if you look at academic studies, of change efforts in large organizations, the failure rate is anywhere between 70 to 90% depending. And to achieve any objective, much less overall change, huge failure rate. And I think it's because the immune system is very effective at mobilizing and crushing. And, and again, it's I, I hasten to add because when I talk about immune system, people think I'm talking about evil people. I'm not. These are extremely well-intentioned people. They want to do what's best for the company, but they're driven by fear. And what's best for the company is to continue doing what's made us successful in the past. That's the way to make it ahead. And and let's not get distracted or take risks with all these other changes that are being proposed. Let's just keep going.
0: You know, I liken it to the book, uh, Crossing the Chasm, Mm. in that if if you're like a startup and you try to market your product to everybody it will crash and burn because the mass population doesn't want it but if you focus on those early adopters or the edge as you're referring to you can demonstrate with that small group of people the the real value of the thing you have to offer before the public at mass gets to destroy you <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah and i think again there are lots of dimensions to this but my advice to anybody who wants to scale an edge is number 1 Don't over um, promote it at the beginning as this is the future of our company. Just say, no, this is an initiative that we're has some opportunity attached. Let's pursue it. And then be very focused on what tangible results can you deliver as quickly as possible that will start to build credibility for this edge, to say, no, this isn't just a fantasy. There's something really big here. Let's be part of it. So it's that real focus on short-term tangible, but aggressive results that can build that credibility.
0: So I have this theory that to properly um, capitalize, get a good return on investment on a failure, something that doesn't work out, there's always assets left over that most people, when something doesn't work out, they just like turn and run in the other direction as far as possible. And and I believe that in the rubble, there are all kinds of assets that, that you could get a lot of value out of. And it sounds like there were some things that you took away from your time at Atari that has paved your career uh, moving forward. So I'm just curious what assets you found in the rubble.
1: (laughs) Uh, You know, I think the assets for me was basically, (coughs) excuse me, again, this this recognition that I was... uh, Earlier in my career, I, I started my business career at the strategy firm Boston Consulting Group, BCG. And I was taught it was all about strategy. It was all about numbers and charts and you know, presenting the right data to the right people. And that's the key to success. And the, the big aha for me at Atari was, no, it's, it's ultimately about emotions. And if you don't understand the emotions that are driving people, Uh, and how to potentially evolve those emotions, all the data is just going to be irrelevant. So that was probably the biggest um, uh, aha for me was to really start to acknowledge the role of emotions and to recognize that if you really want to have impact, you have to focus on shifting those emotions.
0: You know, you started your time at Atari you were hired as a change agent and met the antibodies very quickly. And in your consulting practice, you are often brought into organizations that think they want change. And then when they start to feel it, don't really want it. So what has been the biggest lesson that you can share about actually creating change or people who think they might want it <laughs> inside their organizations?
1: Well, I, I think several things. One is this notion of i I'm, very focused when I go in on a consulting uh, engagement with a client to really focus on the people and at the leadership level if I can't find a leader who has this this courage and conviction to drive the change I'm out and 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 but I, I won't, won't be that severe because if I see potential of somebody in the leadership, then I'll work with that person to try to get them more excited and, and really having the conviction to really move forward. But it, it, until and unless I can find that one person, um, I'm just not willing to, to invest the time and effort to really drive the change uh, or you know, do consulting to uh, support a change effort because I know it's not going to succeed. And and again, the other the other key thing is is being able to frame an opportunity that can really motivate people to want to change. So I, I resist totally this notion, even if companies are in um, challenging times, not to focus on the challenges and the hardships, but focus on what's the big opportunity that we could really achieve unprecedented success with.
0: Awesome. Any uh, concluding thoughts about your your time at Atari uh, or lessons learned from that experience?
1: <sighs> wow. I think that one, one key lesson, too, uh, there is a culture, and this is all connected, but there is a culture in Atari that, again, I think is, is uh, pre- prevalent in most large organizations, a culture of uh, kind of follow the leader and remove friction, just everybody get on the same boat and let's move forward. Um, I've come to believe, and I've actually written quite a bit about this, that if you're really committed to learning and having more and more impact, you need to cultivate what I call productive friction. And That's a culture where people are very willing and, and not only willing, but desiring to challenge each other, but doing it with respect you know in in traditional organizations if you're challenging somebody it's usually with the objective of putting them down and advancing your own interests i believe that the cultures that are going to succeed are those where no we're doing this we're challenging each other because we share a mutual commitment to get to more and more impact and we realize that if we don't challenge each other we're not going to learn faster and so i think that's a, a A huge issue in terms of the cultures that we have in large institutions where, you know, I joke that when I go down the halls of a large company that I'm just being introduced to, if I look in conference rooms and see people smiling at each other and nodding, I know it's a very dysfunctional culture. (laughs) On the other hand, if I see in the conference rooms, people pounding the table and arguing with each other, there's hope.
0: That's funny. (laughs) Well, it sounds like you know, of all the different reasons that I read about uh, for Atari's downfall, it sounds from your experience like uh, they didn't learn fast enough or maybe they weren't trying to learn at all.
1: Yeah, there is no motivation to learn. It was we've, we've achieved all we need to do. There's nothing more to learn. Just keep doing what we're doing.
0: Well, thankfully, you had a lot of learnings that came out of it. John, I really appreciate you um, coming and sharing that experience with me.
1: I appreciate the invitation. Thank you.
0: Absolutely. Uh, Where can people follow you? You have so many articles, so many books that they can find. What's a good place for them to go?
1: Uh, Well, I have a personal website, johnhagel.com. And I'm also very active on social media, Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn. So you can find me on all those platforms as well.
0: Awesome. I'm going to go look for you on all those right now.
1: Thank you. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you so much for listening. If you have any tidbits on what happened to Atari in the 80s or before, I would love to hear your story. So you can find me at Diana Kander on either Twitter or Instagram, or as many of you who have my cell phone number have just been texting me your stories. That's also awesome. Um, I would love to hear what you thought of the episode, what your favorite takeaways were. I am Diana Kander reminding you that curiosity is your superpower. So make good use of it today.